I saw, I saw in this picture, in this sanctuary, people that were on their hands and knees, and they were back in this corner, and they were, their hands in a bunch of schmuck. They were, they had some kind of an adhesive, some kind of matter that they were spreading and moving around, and and I thought, what, what is that? Is, you know, you see Olympic stain and you see some of those things. And I felt like God said, it's, it's called you matter. Yeah. I said, what is you matter? And then I felt again that the Holy Spirit said, you matter. It says, you matter. And there were five people that came to my mind. The first two were these little horse boys that are over here. And then it was Diane in the back. Diane Smith, delightful lady, in case you don't know her. And then Mark and Deb over in this side. So then I thought, well, is this Lord something for them individually? I'm not so sure it was. If it is, you'll figure that out on your own. But it's interesting that they represent kind of a cross-section of the church. There's some young boys over here, a gal that's over 30 in the back, middle age. Sorry, Deb. And then the Lord said, unity. That the you matter has everything to do with unity. You matter. I'd love to go back and I'd love to just grab each one of you and tell you. Happens every time. Brian and I were just talking about this this morning. But you matter. Regardless of your age, and Doug had a word there about needs, right? You matter. You matter. As a young person, you matter. When you were dancing around last week, it mattered to me. If you're older, you play a part. If you're younger, you play a part. If you're in between, you play a part. And it's all about unity. Colossians says love is the bond for unity. You need to understand that God loves you. We all need to know God loves us. Individually. Not because I say so. Not because the church says so. The word of God says that he loves us. People, we've got to get it. I hope that's a word of encouragement. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, have a good day, everybody. <laughs> that word actually kind of fits into my message today. <clears throat> Father, I just want to thank you again for your presence. And Lord, uh, because of your love, Lord, we don't have to be afraid. Lord, I, I want to thank you that when we pray and because of the blood of Christ, we come immediately into your throne room. God, help us to remember, help us to know that when we pray, we come right into your throne room where we see your majesty and how awesome you are the love and the fire in your eyes. God, have your way today. Give us ears to hear. Help us to hear what you are saying today in Jesus' name. I was asking myself two questions that led to uh, this question. The first was, is why was King David said by God to be a man after his own heart. And then secondly, I asked, 
why don't we as believers have victory in our life? And when I asked those two questions, this parable came to mind. So what kind of soil are we? In Matthew 13, I'm going to begin with verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up, and others fell up the rocky place where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. I'm going to start over here. And others fell up on the rocky places where they had not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, everybody got ears today? Let them hear. I'm going to go to Matthew 13, 18, where Jesus interprets the parable. He begins by saying, Hear then the parable of the sower. When someone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one in whom seed was sown beside the road. We do deal with an adversary, Satan. The reality of Satan, I think, has become more evident in the end times. Paul, when he walked on the earth, it says in Thessalonians that twice he was thwarted by Satan. He does steal, kill, and destroy. And the one in whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one in whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one in whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So why doesn't a person understand the word of the kingdom and the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. You know, I, I've been in many services, and I, I've seen people raise their hand when uh, the person up front asks for commitment to the Lord. I've seen multitudes of people do that. But what's really interesting is I don't see them again. I have seen people who have had marital problems, uh, other relationship problems, financial problems, 
And they kind of seek the Lord, but when God doesn't fix their problem, they disappear. Jesus says in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. My question is, is were these people really born again? In the Message Bible, in verse 5, Jesus said, You're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to the original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, it's just that, a body you can look at and touch. But the person who takes shape within is formed by something you can't see and touch, the spirit, and becomes a living spirit. In verse 8 of the Message Bible, says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus asked, what do you mean by this? How, do this? how does this happen? Jesus says, yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate with questions. It's not that you can't ask questions, but we procrastinate with questions. If I tell you things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, what use is there in telling you things you can't see, the things of God? You know, as human beings, we don't believe unless we see. God has set the rules that if you want to see, you've got to believe. And being in a service and raising your hand means nothing unless the Spirit of God is doing something in that person. When I first believed, I was going through a very difficult time in my life. And I can remember the man who testified to me about Jesus Christ. And I didn't ask the Lord into my heart at that time. It probably two weeks down the road when I became more desperate. I finally got down on my knees in my living room. And I said, Jesus... If you're real, come into my life. I had no other questions. I was not procrastinating. I was desperate. I had come to the end of myself. I needed a savior. I was convicted of my shortcomings. I was convicted of how much I hurt other people. And I know that people were praying, but they weren't praying necessarily that God would fix my marriage, which was the crisis. They were praying that I would come to know Jesus Christ. See, I think quite often we pray about the symptoms in people's lives and not about the main issue. Oswald Chambers says that we're amateur providences, little gods praying that God will fix a circumstance that he himself actually has orchestrated to begin with. Oswald Chambers says what we ought to be doing is praying that God make the circumstance ten times worse. 
that the person would be so desperate that no power in hell would keep him back from crying out to the Lord and asking to be saved. We ought to be praying that God, that God would make it a desperate situation for people. That they truly be born again and repent. I'm referring to Oswald Chambers again, but he says, you know, there might be a day when we're in eternity and people are going to come up to us and say, because you were an amateur providence, a little God, you interfered with what God was trying to do in my life and you stole it from me. We don't know how to pray as we should. Let's be honest. We do not know how to pray as we should. That's what the Bible says in chapter 8 of Romans. I remember a man by the name of John Wimmer who was very predominant in the Vineyard Church movement. And uh, actually when a number of years ago there was a video series of on healing and when his church tried to pursue healing the people who were praying for the sick got sick but afterwards God came through and and was manifesting healings but one thing I remember John Wimmer Pastor John Wimmer saying is that when he got a call concerning somebody at the hospital to go pray for them he would ask the question Lord is this a sickness unto death? Because if it was a sickness unto death, he wasn't going to pray for this person's physical healing. He was going to say, Lord, what do you want me to pray about? Because a lot of times in that sickness, God is trying to get at something way more important, eternal life. I think when we just simply lift people up to the Lord, we're doing a lot for them. I think as we were worshiping, perhaps God was bringing people to your mind that you can pray for. Have you had that experience when you're praying and then somebody's name pops into your mind? I believe that's the Lord. And he can show us specific things to pray. We don't know how to pray as we should. I think one of the most powerful weapons we have is praying in tongues and praying the Spirit. And I think that when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit and we're looking for the manifestation of the tongues, it's such a battle in the mind because that's where the battle is. Because Satan knows it's a powerful weapon. I'm not going to do this justice. But Doug had a, a dream once uh, about an individual that he had been working with, I think, in, in the circle sen sentencing program. And in the dream, Doug was praying in tongues like he would as if he were awake. But what he saw is the demons having a hard time with that. They had a hard time with Doug praying in tongues. It's a very powerful weapon. And I think I too often do not use it. I think another thing that we could be doing for somebody who is hearing the word of God but not understanding it is pray what the apostles prayed in the Bible. 
the apostolic prayers. In the house of prayer for the last 15 years, that has been a major focus. We call them apostolic prayers. If they prayed it, you can bet it's on God's heart that that is the will of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that even if the gospel is being veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We can pray that they see the light of the gospel. We can pray that they'll stop procrastinating. We can pray that they will truly believe and receive Jesus Christ. Secondly, why doesn't a person have a firm root and falls away? I want to make something clear. It is not our responsibility to save people. Salvation and sanctification is the work of the Lord. Our responsibility is discipling. Jesus said in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Message Bible, in verse 21 of this chapter, says, but there is no soil of character. And so when the emotions wear off and some difficulty arrives, there's nothing to show for it. We are, we are vessels of clay. If we have leaks, God isn't going to pour more revelation and more word into us. What makes us strong vessels so we can handle more of the Lord's revelation and word is character. To do the right thing. To be men and women of integrity. To be faithful. To be personally responsible. When I was a teacher and a school psychologist, I just did what I had to do and I got a paycheck. When I became an insurance agent, I was responsible for making sure that the agency made a profit. And God revealed something to me. When I would speak about a policy to somebody, I was telling them half the truth. For fear if I told them the whole truth, I wouldn't get the, the business. God convicted of me that very quickly. He said, you need to be a man of integrity. You can trust in yourself or you can trust in me. God loves people who are people of integrity, people he can trust. And he'll pour his revelation and his spirit into us if he sees that we have good soil of character. Many people get stuck in rocky places, just like, it's, like that parable says, the seed fell on rocky places, because they don't develop character. 
doing what's right, being faithful, taking personal responsibility. They go from one rocky place to another rocky place because their choices are not based on the word of the kingdom. We need to be part of the dual role of discipling. Whether you've known the Lord for a half a year or 30 years, God's showing you something. You can disciple even though you've been a believer only for six months because God's showing you something. When God shows us something, it's not only for us. It's for other people. The discipling is sharing. The discipling is encouraging. The discipling is loving one another. It's a dual role. It's iron sharpening iron. It's promoting accountability. It's being transparent. I came to the Lord at age 27. From that day on, I've had people in my life who have discipled me, and I have discipled them. It's a dual role. From the person who testified about Jesus Christ to me, to the 12 men who were in a Bible study, I couldn't figure out why it was 12. One of us had to be a traitor. No, just kidding. <laughs> to the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship. To Promise Keepers. To Saturday morning men's meetings. I've had people who have been in my life who are passionate about God, who speak the word into my life, and vice versa. It's my choice. And by God's grace, I've had those people in my life to motivate me, to encourage me, to be the person who God wants me to be. People who have no firm root do not have good soil of character and are not in discipling relationships. There are people who hear the word, it's fruitful, and it becomes unfruitful. That means that we were fruitful at one time. You and I could be in this category anytime. It talks about the worries of the world. One of Satan's most powerful weapons is fear, worry, anxiety. It strangles a person emotionally and spiritually. And how many of you have fear right now but are fearful to raise your hand? Fear is very subtle, and its hook is punishment. In 1 John 4, it says that love has no fear. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment or torment. People are fearful of failing, fearful of being found out, fearful of being rejected, fearful of uh, being taken advantage of, fearful of making mistakes with negative consequences from those mistakes. And because... Because fear strangles us, it's a weapon that, that, that Satan uses to get us back into slavery. It says in Romans 8 that it, 
We have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. What fear does is it puts you in slavery. In Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus, through his death, he rendered powerless Satan so that we would not have slavery, be subject to slavery again because of fear of death. Fear leads to slavery. Because of fear or insecurity, there are sister demons, and I call them demons because spirit of fear is a demon. It has two other demons that typically accompany it, control and intimidation. Insecure people want narrow parameters. They don't want to go outside those parameters, and they will do what they need to do to control the circumstances. And because they want to control the circumstances, they control people. They try to control people. And one way they do that is through intimidation. And their motivation when they're making a decision is based on fear. It's not based on love. It's based on fear. And that has dire consequences for the people around that person. And fear builds walls between people. And we are not the people who God wants us to be. And here's the criteria when we need to do something in terms of confronting fear. When we have to walk on eggshells to please that person for fear of a negative reaction. If we are not the people who God created us to be, we're not going to be fruitful. God will give us moments, crisis, if you will, where we can choose to deal with the fear. I've had to do that many times. I can remember a time where I actually had dual thoughts going through my mind. That's unusual for a man. <laughs> but in a split second, I had these thoughts. When somebody's saying something negative towards me, intimidating me, I thought, you know, I can submit to this and lose whatever freedom I had, lose the power to be free, or I could confront it in love, speaking the truth with courage. And when I did that, there was freedom. The atmosphere changed. Is this a spiritual thing? Quite often it is. You confront fear, it produces freedom. Freedom in you and freedom in the atmosphere. Freedom for other people. And I'm not talking about being disrespectful and rebellious. I'm talking about approaching this thing with the right spirit. Speaking the truth in love with courage. It's kind of like dying to myself and trusting God to the outcome for the outcome. About six weeks ago, Jerry and I were traveling to Little Rock on Interstate 29, going through Sioux City, Iowa. And I was following these vehicles in a 55 mile per hour zone. And I was right close to them. All of a sudden looked up and they were way ahead of me. And so I wasn't thinking about the speed limit. I was thinking about catching up with them. And I did at the same time I was going downhill. And there was this machine that was blinking. 
I thought, is this a speed photo enforcer? I didn't think about it for a week, but on the way back, we were coming through Kansas City and I was driving, and these stoplights had the photo enforcers, and I went through in a yellow, and I thought, they got me. They got me, it turned red when I was in the intersection. So I had gotten up at four that morning, I had been driving, that was like 2.30 or three in the afternoon, and Jerry could see that I was changing. I was looking inward, I was being anxious, I was thinking, I got two violations in a week. One more violation, I lose my license. In the state of Minnesota, you get three violations, you lose your license. And I was thinking, I'm an insurance agent, what is the underwriter gonna say? <laughs> Jerry could see that I was looking inward and she confronted me on it. And instead of being anxious for nothing, and praying, I wasn't. But through her confronting me, I started doing that. And I felt humiliated. You know, if you want to pray that somebody get a soft heart, pray that God would grant them, in a sense, a gift of humiliation. Humiliation will soften your heart very quickly. It did for me. I was, I was really sensitive to other people during that period of time when I was contemplating this. I came back to church and I was talking to Pastor Bruce about it. And... I thought, you know, God was just trying to teach me about being humble and, you know, give me the gift of humiliation. And I was telling my wife that, and she says, no, I think he was just saying, stop speeding. <laughs> oh, the truth hurts. <laughs> you know, you think about all the things that we worry about and the fear. There are some things that you can remember, but... Majority of the stuff we worry about, we forget about it a month later. Certainly a year from now, most cases, doesn't make any difference because a lot of it's what I call fearful speculation. And when I was concerned about those citations, that was fearful speculation. That's all that was. And I was being anxious. And I should have been anxious for nothing. But fear will cripple us. It will make us unfruitful. Deceitfulness of riches, I call it double vision. Because we got our eyes on the material things of the world and the Lord. It's double vision. You get double vision, it's kind of hard to see clearly. What path should you be taking? And some people think that greed is just something that's evident in a prosperous society. It's not true. Greed's a sin, whether you're in the United States or Honduras. Because the, the illusion is of getting more and wanting more. In Philippians 2, Paul says, for, they, for that they all seek after their own interest and not of those of Christ Jesus. As believers, our interest, our primary interest, should be that of Jesus Christ. Are we his children? Are our bodies a temple of the Holy Spirit? Seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness and all these other things will be added on. Is it true or is it not true? But yet we get so focused on material things. He said, he said in the end times he's going to shake whatever can be shook. The only thing that's going to stand is the kingdom of God, so why not seek it? And then he's promised he's going to add the stuff on anyway. I remember during the Clinton-Bush uh, presidential campaign, the first Bush. 
Remember what the slogan was? It's the economy, stupid. No, it's not the economy, stupid. It's Christ Jesus, Bubba. <laughs> fear and double vision will choke the word. If you're dealing with fear, which, you know, in the end times, it said that men's hearts will faint because of fear. God sent Jesus Christ to die, that we'd have freedom to be who he wants us to be. The first, thing, first step in dealing with fear is admitting it. We all deal with it. If we don't, we're not going to bear fruit. So who is the person who has good soil? He's the person, Jesus emphasized this, who hears the word. When Jesus says, hear, if you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying. He's saying, paying attention. Pay attention. He hears the word. He takes it in. He receives it. He believes it. Then he understands it. And then he produces. He bears. He does something. Hears, one category. Next one is receiving, believing, understanding, taking it in. The third category is producing, doing something. And the hundredfold and the sixtyfold and the thirtyfold has nothing to do with your intelligence or your aptitude. It has everything to do with your spiritual capacity which is determined by God and your relationship to him, being obedient to the Lord. And as a church, we've gotten caught up in the numbers. We are small places, small parts of the kingdom of God. And I think we're going to be surprised at how our decisions affected the kingdom of God when we're in heaven. Billy Graham has testified of Jesus Christ to millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people. He's had favor like no other man probably in the last couple of centuries. He's virtually uh, witnessed to every president. He even witnessed to some communist leaders. Has this man borne fruit? How about the person who testified to him about Jesus Christ? Will he get any credit for that? Absolutely. How about the person who testified to the person who testified to Billy Graham? Will he get credit for that fruit? Absolutely. It isn't about numbers because we don't know. We don't know what our obedience does. We only will know when we get to the kingdom of God and we're going to be surprised at how much fruit was really born in our lives. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, Paul says, I am convinced that God is able to guard everything that I have entrusted, entrusted, entrusted to him. He entrusted his life, his finances. Can we entrust our children to him? Can we entrust our spouses to him? Can we entrust our health to him? We can. 
when we do that, then God has control and he is working in our lives. By implication, if we don't entrust it to him, is he really guarding it? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why, because we're getting in the way. We're interfering with what God wants to do in our lives. Is he worthy of us entrusting everything to him? I'm convinced, as Paul is, that he will guard it. Spiritual capacity, entrusting all of our things to the Lord. Thirdly, sowing out of our need. You got a financial problem? Well, what does the word say? It says tithe. Sowing out of our need. Listen, either the word is true or it's not. Tithing is an Old Testament and a New Testament concept. You got financial problems? Try it. You'll like it. Unfortunately, I've also known of situations where people were tithing in because maybe they were tested, I don't know. Their finances started to become a little less, and so they withdraw the tithing. By the word of God, that's not a wise maneuver. That's the time to really say, okay, God, I'm going to test you in this. I'm going to sow out of my need. Either what you said is true or it's not. Some people say, I don't feel loved. I'm all alone. I don't think those people like me. I've got this perception. It's a misperception. A person used to really be friendly to me. He's not friendly to me anymore. Just don't feel loved. You sow out of your need. You want to be loved? Go love. You want kindness returned to you? Be kind. I've had misperceptions. I don't always do it, but what I do sometimes is I'll go and give that person a hug, shake their hand, smile at them, and most of the time, 99% of the times, it's just a misperception. Satan plays a number in your mind. I'm not very healthy. So out of your need. I'm not saying this is a panacea, but it certainly helps. Go exercise and eat right. Eat the right stuff. Exercise. Maybe your health might change. So out of your need. I really lack knowledge. I have a problem with wisdom. I can be ignorant sometimes. So out of your need. Go to the word of God and see what he's saying. When I was born again, I didn't go to the Gospels. I was, my marriage was such, so critical, I had to do the right thing. I went to Proverbs. That was what helped me during that time. I got wisdom by reading Proverbs. So out of your need. Fourthly, I want to say one more thing about um, sewing for your health. I really believe that there is a high relationship between physical discipline and spiritual discipline. I think the two go together. I've found that when I have eaten right and exercised, 
there is a, a high correlation between my spiritual walk with the Lord and my physical well-being as well. Fourthly, righteousness bears fruit. In James it says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Uh, a number of years ago, a friend of mine said that sin is expensive. Sin is expensive. I was thinking of King David, uh, who, who God did say, you're a man after my own heart. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't compute from the natural man's perspective. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. You know, King Saul lost the kingdom because he was disobedient. King David didn't. He also had a problem with lust. I mean, not only did he have a number of wives, but he had a number of concubines. I don't know what you call them, concubines or mistresses. You know, I'm the, I'm the fifth of six children. My dad would discipline me. <laughs> I don't know why. He named my older brother's names before he got to mine. You ever had that experience? I'm thinking of King David. He's meeting one of his sons. Now, you're Amnon, aren't you? No, Dad. I'm Adonijah. Adonijah, Dad. Oh, yeah, your mom was Abigail. No, Dad. My mom is Haggith. Dad, her name is Haggith. Can, can you imagine the, the dysfunction there? <laughs> How many good women do you need? It's not multiple choice. One is the answer. But I've got some good news. I believe that repentance brings fruit. How, how, else could you, how else could you account for God saying that David was a man after his own heart? If you read when Nathan the prophet came to, to David and, and basically said, you, you got a problem, immediately it says that uh, uh, David repented and God, Nathan says, well, God has forgiven your sin. He's taken it away. I want to read something very quickly out of Luke 13. This is Jesus' call to repent. Listen. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who, re who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 in whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but cut it down. But if, but if not, cut it down. You know, I've, always, I've never seen this before, why that parable came with that call to repent. 
He was saying, if you repent, you won't perish. But the reason he talked about the tree is Jesus, a lot of times, like in the, the, the parable of the... Uh, thank you. <laughs> the parable of the, uh, the small gate and the narrow path, he uses trees as an analogy to people. And if you, if you don't bear good fruit, you're cut down. And the implication here is the vineyard keeper, I believe, is kind of like an intercessor. And, and, the, and the fertilizer is kind of word of God. You know, if the tree responds and bears fruit, i.e., when we repent, we will bear fruit. God's very uh, slow about, what does it say? He's not slow about his promises, the psalm counts slowness. But he's patient towards all men, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to repent. And the implication here with the fig tree is, well, give it another year. He's been very patient. Actually, it's three years. He gives us four years to, re, to, to bear fruit. He gives us time to repent. But when we repent, there is fruit. Repentance brings fruit. Lastly, this is a biggie. Unity, and that's why I had Carrie speak about this. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we'd all be one <clears throat> as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, that we'd be one in them. Why? So the world may believe that Jesus Christ was sent. And what is unity? It's you helping me and me helping you to win daily battles. I need people in my life who will correct me and make me accountable, will speak life and truth into me. Instead of being anxious, I had a wife who confronted me to pray. Have you ever thought about that God allows anxious moments in your life so you'll pray? I'm a ruminator. I got a problem thinking. God doesn't want me to ruminate on this stuff. He wants me to pray. God's orchestrates circumstances. You have anxiety, pray. When you wake up at night and you're thinking, pray. You can sleep anyway. Pray. I believe God orchestrates those situations so we will pray. And you cannot be a lone ranger and bear fruit 160 and 30. God didn't design it that way. This is the body of Christ. If you are a hand and you're not involved with the body, you're not going to be functioning and you're not going to bear fruit. I've been under the delusion. I've put my time in, I've taught Sunday school, I've been involved in the youth program over the years, that I can come on Sunday and sit in a pew and feel connected. No, I can't. I think God is wiping away this delusion. Being part of the body is exactly that, being part of the body. What is your role? You don't know? This is how you start. What's the word of God say to you today? I really believe that God will lead you if you're doing your word, if you're doing his word. 
Your gifts will blossom. It starts doing his word. Don't be concerned about what job he's got for you or who you're supposed to marry. And sometimes he does identify that, but quite often that isn't necessarily the case. It's simply doing his word. And he'll lead you through the door that he wants you to go through. You cannot be a lone ranger and bear fruit. I think God is creating unity because it's going to be the opposite of the world. And he's going to create unity through a vision. This has been a revelation to me. The importance of getting into the vision of the church. Now, if you don't feel that, you're, that you want to be part of this, for your own sake, before you get before the judgment seat, find a church where you can get into the vision. God is going to create unity through the vision. You're going to have a world that is becoming more divisive, more divisive, more rancorous, more hateful. You're going to see calamity and turmoil. And then you're going to have the church. God is bringing the church together for unity. Why? Because it's going to be a testimony of Jesus Christ. Before he returns, there's going to be great unity in the church that we've never seen before. If Jesus prayed it, do you think the Father is going to answer it? Absolutely. And it's going to be through creating revelations in our heart of Jesus Christ and the desire to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my brothers and sisters. Now, I won't always agree with them. I've been married long enough to know that ain't going to happen. But I will love. So the world may believe that God has sent Jesus Christ. We will bear fruit in that oneness, in that unity. In John 15, 7, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you will and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. It doesn't make any difference what happened yesterday. Today, if you're here and you've got ears and you're hearing the word, it is God's desire that you and I bear much fruit. That the Father would be glorified. That there would be great unity in the church as a testimony of Jesus Christ. He will have his way. God is creating unity, not man. Jesus is. And he will be seen as the exalted one. He will be seen as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you believe? Do you have ears to hear? God wants you in the body, doing his word. He wants each of us to bear much fruit, to have good soil. He's doing it. He's doing it. He's doing it. Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you'd have your way, that each of us would have good soil, that the church would have good soil. Lord God, I pray for people who have been under fear. Lord God, I pray in the name of Jesus for their sake, for the sake of freedom, for the, for the sake of the freedom that Jesus died for, 
that we would be set free to be who you have created us to be, almighty God. Father, I pray, strengthen them, encourage them, make them strong in you, O Lord God. Father, I pray that we'd have single vision, vision of what you are doing, almighty God, that you would be exalted in our lives, in our families, O Lord God. We entrust things to you, that we'd so out of need, that we believe in you and your word, almighty God. Come, Lord, come. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us ears to hear. Now, Father, I pray that that word will grow deep, that each of us, O Lord God, would have deep ruts, deep ruts. And when the winds come, Lord God, we will not be moved because you are our rock and you are our foundation. Lord, I just want to thank you again for each person here. I pray your richest blessings on them, Lord, that Jesus Christ would be seen in their lives and you, Lord God, would receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The way we're going to close our services, we're going to close with communion. Yeah, I think this is so fitting as, as Steve gave the word of the Lord and you know, we can get up here and we can give these sermons and we can hear the word, but you know, it, it, it takes Christ in us to accomplish and to produce fruit. And I was meditating on when Paul institutes the Lord's Supper. You know, one of the things that we do here as the church, one of the sacraments that, you know, is baptism and the, and the Lord's Supper, or communion as, as we refer to it. And Paul instituted in 1 Corinthians 11, and I, and I was just kind of struck with this because we can say, well, why do we take communion? Is it some religious ritual that we do? And the answer obviously is no. And then we could say, well, why do we do it? Is it you know, and, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. Is it, is it remembering? Yes, it is. It's remembering the sacrifice. It's remembering the cross. But Paul says this, and he quotes Jesus. And he said, you do it to proclaim my death until I return. And I think why that is significant is exactly what Steve was sharing today is that to walk this out, to be able to repent, to be able to walk in unity, to be able to bear fruit, we must proclaim his death in and through us. We, we have to take up the cross. We have to run to the cross of Christ every day. And that's why when he said, when you do it, you're proclaiming my death. And so when we take these elements, more than just a ritual of what we do in remembering the sacrifice, we are proclaiming his death because we need to understand that without him, we can do nothing. And we need to take up the cross. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, if you want to bear fruit, if you want to accomplish, you have to take up your cross and follow me. And so we're going to pray, and uh, we're going to dim the lights in a minute. We're going to, we'll put some intimate worship on, and, and this is how we're going to close service. So we'll, there'll be no um, you know, kind of formal dismissal. As you come up and take the elements, you are free to go. We ask that you just keep the fellowship in the back in the foyer. If you need assistance with the elements, um, just raise your hand. If one of our leaders could just find those that maybe raise their hand, and you can just go get the elements for them. And, and so that's going to be how we dismiss today is, is to remember and proclaim his death. Jesus, we love you. Lord, we do thank you for your sacrifice. God, it is, is your sacrifice that brings us here today. Without the cross, we wouldn't have a chance. 
And Lord, I pray that each and every day, God, to bear fruit, we would gaze at the cross. Lord, as Steve was sharing, he was convicted. Lord, it's, it's loving people that are hard to love, walking in unity when it's hard to walk in unity, walking in unity when I don't agree, not being anxious when every part of me wants to be anxious. And that, Lord, we need the cross. We need to crucify our flesh every day. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning, Lord, we don't want to miss this moment, um, the power and the significance. God, help it not to be ritual to us. Help it not to be routine. But, Lord, as we take the elements this morning, that we would remember your death and we would proclaim your death. Because, Lord, it is all about the cross. You laid it all out. And you even from the cross looked at those who were betraying you and crucifying you. And you said, Father, forgive them. Lord, the only way we can forgive and love is to have your life in and through us. So, Lord, we receive it with thanksgiving. We receive your, yeah, Lord, the, the sacraments, Lord, with, with grateful hearts. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this. He said, I, I pass on to you what Jesus gave to me, that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread in his hands and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember my sacrifice. I don't want you to ever forget the price that was paid for you. Then it said after supper that he took the cup. And he said, this is the, the covenant, my, the new covenant of my blood between God and his people. That through the blood of Christ, we are under a new covenant. We're under the covenant of grace and mercy. As often as you drink it, remember me. And so, Jesus, this morning, as we close this service and we receive the bread and we receive, Lord, the juice that represents your body and your blood, let us receive it with gladness. Let us remember and let us proclaim your death in and through us. God, we desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen.